Well, we are on this series called uh, What's So Fascinating About the Torah? And this, this weekend, I'm going to bring it uh, to a conclusion, okay? And uh, this is part three, and I'm going to round this up uh, this weekend. But, you know, essentially, I felt like it's really important for us to consider the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because they really form a very substantial portion of our scriptures, and yet it is not uh, oftentimes something that we talk about many of us read through it grudgingly if we read through it at all, and we usually don't have very much understanding of the Torah, and we think to ourselves that, hey, we are in the New Testament, there's not much application of these. So I want to change our mindsets about this, right? And so over the last two weekends, we've been talking about this. On the first week, I gave us three possible ways of looking at the Torah, you know, and, uh, and you know, I, I mentioned these three ways, the linear progression, the climatic view, as well as the parallel uh, way of looking at it. Now, if you... If if all this is all like Egyptian, uh, you know, uh, inscriptions to you and you don't understand any of this, then I want to encourage you to hop on to our YouTube channel and go back two weeks ago and you can watch this message all over again and it will really give you a great um, foundation uh, for this series, okay? So I want to encourage you, if you didn't, if you missed this message, go back and check it out. And then, of course, last week I talked about the commandments that are in the Bible, not just the Ten Commandments, but 613 commandments that are given in the Torah. Of course, I didn't go through all 613 of them, but I just gave us some handles of how to look at these commandments. Most definitely, we must not see these commandments as a series of do's and don'ts, but instead, we are supposed to understand that these laws, what they do is they provide us an entrance into knowing God. Amen? I mentioned the psalmist uh, uh, reciting this, you know, uh, praying this and saying, Lord, you know, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in thy law. And there are just wonderful things that God wants to reveal to us from his laws. Now this weekend, I want to again zoom out and present to us some important overarching views that we need to consider, which the Torah lays a foundation from the very beginning for us as Christians. And these overarching views, what they do is they form the worldview that we have. Now is our worldview important? You bet it is so important because our worldview will impact our response and how we engage with the world around us. Now, if your worldview is that, hey, this world is nothing good, it's all bad, God is done with it, God's going to destroy everything here by fire, you know, all we are Christians, we're supposed to do is wait for the rapture, oh Jesus, catch me up. Then I'm telling you, if that's your worldview, your response, you know, to life is going to be very, very sad. Because if that is your worldview, all you will be thinking about is how do I survive? You'll be looking out for yourselves. You know, we'll be isolating ourselves from the world and says, hey, let's not be contaminated by the world because we are all preparing for the rapture. You know, and let's all just get caught up and don't let the world contaminate us. We will disengage. In fact, if that's your worldview, the best thing you can do is go buy some land in the outskirts of New Zealand, form a little community, plant your own garden, rear your own cattle, and live there until Jesus comes back, right? And cut yourself off from the rest of the world. But you see, if, if, but on the other hand, if you realize this, that this world is is created by God and God owns everything upon this earth and when God created this world seven times he pronounced over this world that it 
is good. And let me tell you this, when God pronounces something, it's not just a description of what is happening. God is blessing what He has created. Amen? And the earth belongs to God. And so instead of disengaging, our job is to engage culture. Our job is to reach out to people, to bring repair and healing to this world that has been touched by sin. You see, when that's our response and that, you know, the action that comes out of us is going to be different. I promise you, if that is your outlook, then there is a sense of hope. There is also a deep sense of purpose that will take a hold of you. Now, I want to give us an understanding of two things this, uh, this weekend, you know, as an overarching view of how God has created the world and what He wants to convey to us from the Torah, okay? And the first thing for us to understand is God's view concerning mankind. By this, I mean humans, all people that is on this earth. Now, one of the essential things that's established for us in the Torah is that it begins by telling us the origins of you and I, of humankind. And as Christians, we believe in creation and we don't believe in evolution. Now, if you, I've often asked myself this, you know, what was creation really like? If I was there on the seven days of creation, what did it actually mean? I mean, the Bible tells us oftentimes, you know, uh, the Bible has told us this, that a, a day is like a thousand to the Lord. Amen? Like a thousand years to the Lord. And God doesn't measure time the way we measure. So often I think to myself, are those seven days recorded in Genesis, seven literal 24 hours days? Or is it actually much longer or more complex? But I, and I think that the Bible doesn't actually tell us the full complexity and it leaves those things unexplained. So we really don't know what is the mechanics behind creation itself, right? But I think that what is important is that the absence of details tells us something else. It points us to what is more important. The greater importance for us to understand concerning creation is that there is a design behind creation. The creation, all that we see around us is not random. It didn't just sprout out out of no reason at all, but everything had a purpose. Everything has a reason for it. And that's what the seven-day account of creation communicates to us. God had a purpose for everything that is built. Now, this is the exact opposite of evolution. Evolution just says everything pops up because there is some kind of causal relationship and everything is by instinct. We are where we are today. We are not hunched over like monkeys because we have learned to survive. Let me tell you, if you prescribe to that, then we are all moved by instincts that we don't even understand. It's all about survival. Then there is no such thing called free will or choice, much less purpose in our lives. If you prescribe to evolution, then I'm telling you there is no purpose to your life except to survive, procreate, pass on your seat, and then, you know, hope that the meteorite doesn't hit the planet again, right? But if you understand that it is creation, that there is design, we might not understand how it happens, but it gives us purpose to know that God did something with an intention and a purpose. Now, the other thing that we always understand is this, that we, of all different, of all creation, as humans, we are the only ones created in God's image and in His likeness. Now, this is important because it means that we've been given free will, just as God has. We're given an intellect, we're given an, we are given a capacity for words, and the recording of words that no other creature has. We have the ability to create. And these are all qualities that come to us because we are made in God's image. At the same time, the Bible tells us this, that God, when He created us, He breathed upon us, which makes us not just material beings, but we are spiritual beings. Amen? You know, there is a consciousness, and more than that, our spirit are all eternal. We are all going to live for eternity. It's just a question of where you are going to spend eternity in. Now, these qualities 
are brought very clearly to us from the Torah, okay? And I want to drill in and give us a couple of things. The first thing I want to bring to us is that when God created us, God created all of us with equal value. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, verse 28, I want to show you the blueprint for mankind, okay? And God says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, when you read the blueprints of the creation of mankind, you've got to understand this. God created male and female. And then he gave a commandment and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, implicit in these statements is an, is, is an expression of equality between men and women. Amen. And also the our joint necessity in order to fulfill God's commandment to multiply and fill the earth. Men can't do that on their own. Neither can women. Right? And so in the first statement concerning mankind, God establishes something. Hey, men and women have all equal value. Women was not an afterthought of God. I know that there is a subsequent account about how Adam was created first. And, and, but, but this statement tells us, hey, there was a sequence of creation, but in God's design, He created male and female from the very beginning. So women was not an afterthought. Women are not secondary. And we got we to gotta get over this once and for all. Amen. Here in the house of God, men and women are equal. Hello? Absolutely. Sometimes people say church is very show, uh, male chauvinistic, you know? Because we say amen instead of a women. We sing him instead of her. No, I'm just kidding. Bad joke, okay? Now, at the same time, you've got to understand something else. When the, the purpose of God's covenant with Abraham and the birthing of the na nation of Israel, while God started with Abraham and he gave birth to Israel and resided and made a covenant with Israel upon the earth, God's intention was never only to bless Israel. Israel was not supposed to be exclusive to the people of all the people on the earth that God wanted to reach because in the blessing that's given to Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 18, God said that through you all the earth shall be blessed. Israel is merely the starting point. What, what God's intention is always to transcend every race and every people group. God's intent was never just the nation of Israel. That's why when Jesus came and he taught us the Lord's Prayer, he did not say, your will be done in heaven as it is in Jerusalem. The Lord never prayed that. But the Lord said, your will be done on earth. All the earth, amen, because that's what the fulfillment is. Heaven is going to be represented by every tongue, every tribe, every people group, because God loves all of them, red and yellow, black and white, amen. And that's established for us from the beginning. So in the, the world might be fighting over these issues, but in the church, we've got to get this so clear for us, amen. Now, I want to point out something else about the value that God has placed in people. Because in the Torah, more than any books, there is, there is the concept of senses that is given. Of course, the book of Numbers has got two senses that is given. But the law of senses, of how to take a census, is also given in these five books. Now, every country, every nation will take censuses. 
And it's important for us to take a census because it gives the nation a sense of their strength, their birth rate, their economic potential, so on and so forth, right? And in the Bible, when it comes to counting things, there are several Hebrew words that are commonly used, okay? For counting, for numbering, or whatever it might be. But what is amazing is that when it comes to the taking of a census, when the Bible describes, when the Torah describes a census, the Torah uses a word that is not normally associated with the function of counting. Okay, it uses a very different word. And the word that is used literally means this, to lift one person's head, to lift their head. It's as though the imagery is that you put your hands on the chin of a person and lift their heads so that you can behold the face of the, of the person. And what is connotated here is not just a counting of heads, but a lifting of somebody's face so that you can see who they are. You can consider the person. It was a deliberate effort to drive into the psyche of the whole nation that we should never see people only as digits. Amen? we got to know people. we got to see their person, know their name. The tendency is always to associate our strength with the size of our population. Worse still, when a church begins to think that the strength of the church is based on the size of the congregation. And that's fraught with error. You see, this is carried forward in the New Testament. And one of the most poignant expressions of this is when Jesus multiplied bread and fish to feed the thousands. And in all the time that Jesus does this, he chooses a method that is very unusual. Because if I was the one multiplying bread, you know, and I've got five, 6,000 people to feed, you know what I'll do? You know what I'll do? I'll do a buffet table. I'll multiply, da, 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 and then you'll line up, all calm, tick, 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 then you'll go and sit down. But Jesus doesn't do that. He makes his disciple go sit these people out into groups. And then he passes it out to the disciples, and the disciples had to go one person by another and serve them one by one, serve them one at a time. It's as though God has to touch every person physically and then multiply the bread and feed them. And this is consistent because God never sees people just as a digit. You see, when you understand God's concept of mankind, when you understand that we are created in His image, the value is the same. And God's love and concern for every person, the implication is this, that we ought to value and appreciate people, every single person. We got to stop objectifying people into groups. This is like that, this is like that. Stereotyping them. We got to stop scanning over people and reduce our interactions to a mere high and a buy. Amen. I, I, you know, I've been taking the bus to church quite a lot on the weekdays when I come into the office to work. And uh, I take bus 12. I usually uh, I'm out at 7.30 because the bus takes an hour and a half to get to church, okay? And I made a decision, okay? An hour and a half I'm going to sit in the bus and I'm going to do some productive things, but when I get on the bus, I'm going to notice the people that are around me. And one of the things I made and decided is that I am always going to do something for the bus driver. And so there are days where I will just, you know, if I have enough time, I'll just go buy something from the bakery, you know, and when I hop onto the bus, I'll give it to the bus driver and say, hey, this is for you. Or at the minimum, I'll always greet them, hey, good morning, how are you doing? That's what I'll do. You know, the funny thing is this, I've done this for weeks now, okay? And it never, it, it, it's, it's always the same. The bus driver always looks surprised. Always looks surprised. When I give them something, they say, huh, why, for me, huh? You know, they, they'll refuse, some will take it, you know, and they, they, it's almost as though they will pause in an awkward moment when you say hi to them before, oh, oh, hi, hi, you know? But think about this. The bus driver must see thousands of people every day because bus 12 is a double-decker bus. It's always crowded, Okay. And yet, it surprises them when someone greets them. 
And you know what that tells me? That tells me that most people, 99% of the people, don't bother to say anything to the bus drivers. You see, when we are Christians and we begin to see the world in a different way, it makes us different. You go on a bus, you don't just want to scan over, you want to be the one that surprises the bus driver and notices the bus driver. I remember one day I hopped onto the bus a couple of, maybe a month ago, and I got in this bus driver some bread and stuff like that. And he was really moved. I went up an hour and a half later, one hour, 30 minutes later, I alight off at Roxy. Okay, and I remember I got off the bus and he didn't drive off. He waited till I walked past him, waved at me, and then he drove off. And I'm just telling you this, can you imagine if every one of us would do that? If, if every one of us will find this as a life practice, that when we see people, we'll stop scanning through heads and empty faces, but instead we'll start taking notice, because that's the implication, because our worldview changes the way we operate as people, amen, and that's how we're going to make a difference, amen. Now, the second thing I want to point out about mankind is that God has given tremendous capacity to human beings. Now, when we, I, I want to consider the, the, the incident at the Tower of uh, Babel, and as Christians, we always see this in a very negative light, right? Of course, the word Babel means confusion, and, and uh, there is definitely a, a bad incident in which the people had an evil intent, and God came, confused their language, and then scattered them all over, okay? And, but I want you to notice something, okay? That just look at this. People coming together caught the attention of God. And God said, if, you know, look at how these people have come together. Now nothing will be able to stop them. They can do anything that they want to. Now, I know this is a, there is a negative connotation to this, but I want to highlight to us the innate capacity of humans to come together, unified over a purpose, and nothing becomes not accomplishable to them. Everything becomes accomplishable. Now, who gave humans that ability? Was it the devil or was it God who gave them that ability? Let me suggest to you, it is God who gave us that ability. Amen? And human capacity that is able to come together and achieve something immeasurable. And hi history has given us ample examples of this. And while the, in, in, a, in the Tower of Babel, the intents of the people are evil, evil yet the imaginative, the, cap the capacity and the ability of the people was something that God imbued in all of us. This is our human you know, inheritance that God has given when He created us. Now, I want to show us a parallel to this event. I call this the, antith the antithesis of this episode. And it is in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, okay? And here, if you show that diagram where it is, you know, uh, the, all the, uh, the details are given, you'll notice that these two events have an incredible parallel to it. Both, in both situations, the people were unified of one accord for a single purpose, in both times, they came together, you know, and they had an intention, and then God comes. God sees what is happening, and then He cannot but come into that situation, right? And He pours His Spirit out, He moves upon the people, and in both situations, God does something to the language that the people speak. In the one, He confuses the language, scatters them. In the other one, He gives them new tongues. Now, let me say this. When the new tongues came, I promise you it wasn't, this, they, they, were all, they were not unified in their language. Neither did they understand the tongues. But the result is completely different. In the one with the Tower Babel, the, the, the new tongues that came scattered them. In this, the new tongues that came unified them even further. And for the next hundreds of years, they literally changed the history of mankind and the church was born through this group of people. And yet, and in both situations, it's the capacity of human beings that God has placed in us. 
And that's amazing. I wanna, I, I'm telling you this. We can change the world for better. Amen? We can. I mean, history is not about some great event. History is about people who are unified with a single-hearted purpose. Amen? And not only that, human capacity is not just limited to what we can do, what we can accomplish. I want to point out something amazing, something absolutely staggering. God has given us the capacity to move Him. Now, I think that this is absolutely staggering. God has given us the ability to move Him. You see, uh, you know, God, God is not some immovable, faraway being that after He creates us, He leaves us all to our own devices. I do or die, you all decide, lah, you know? And I'm not going to get involved in human history. No, no, God is not like that. But God reveals Himself. He shows us His purpose. He gives, he gives us a door so that we can come and know Him. And, you know, the Torah makes it clear that God wants to be intimately involved in our lives. His desire has always been to come and dwell in the midst of His people. And, and consider this, okay, that our participation with Him is not incidental but pivotal. You see, we must shift from a view whereby we think that, hey, you know, if I pray, then okay, lah, if I don't pray, God will still do what, you know? we got to move away from that. we got to understand that God has given us a role that is pivotal. If you don't do your part, something is going to be missing from the puzzle. And God literally gives us an involvement that is pivotal and not just, you know, you want to do, you don't want to do, that's all up to you. No, think about this. Jacob wrestled with God and the Bible tells us that Jacob prevailed over God. And this is in the Torah. Jacob warned God out. I mean, the Lord said, stop, stop, you know, you win, you win, and, and, and let me go. And Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. Now, think for a moment, okay? Do you for a moment think that God could not beat Jacob? Do you for a moment think that Jacob actually could pin the Lord unless God, you know, that God had no choice over it? I don't think so. I think God literally willingly allowed Jacob to prevail over him. God permitted a man to prevail over him. And this is not a saint. Jacob was by no means a saint. Jacob was a con con conniving person. He was deceptive. He would practice favoritism. He had all kinds of father issues in his life. And yet, he had a tenacity to contend with God. And God permitted himself to be taken and to be pre prevailed upon by such a man. You see, this is the inheritance. This is, what, this is the capacity God has given to every one of us. You and I can move God. If this is not, this doesn't shake your world, I don't know what would shake your world. Maybe the parliamentary saga that's happening right now. <laughs> but this should shake us. Because I'm telling you this, it should turn your prayer life around. It should turn the way you see your walk with God. Because what is it that you are contending for? What is, it that, what is your struggle? I want to encourage us, don't lose hope, don't give up. Amen. I fight this all the time. I fight this all the time. Okay? I fight the thought of giving up all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite weak, okay? So. <laughs> but God has given us capacity and to move Him and a place to contend with Him. I want to encourage us concerning that. Now, the second overarching perspective I want to give to you has to do with what is small, what is weak, and what is insignificant. And for some reason, God is almost intentional in choosing that which is small, that which is weak, and that which is insignificant. You know, we read the Bible, and after a while, we become so familiar with the biblical text that we stop 
questioning the biblical text. I don't mean to question, you know, um, you know, whether it is real, it is right, it is truth. But we fail to question, you know, why God did certain things the way He does it, right? For example, why does creation have to begin with a couple, Adam and Eve? If I was God, I would create a million straight away. I, I, wouldn't, take, I wouldn't take so long, okay? I don't have the patience for that. I mean, you think about that. The history of Israel begins with, again, a man and a woman, Abram, Sarai. The possession of the promised land begins with a token, a little piece of burial ground that Abraham bought for Sarah when she died. You know, and, and the thing about this is you've got to un, un, ask, why does God do things so differently? He didn't need to start with two persons. And not only that, his intention was to bless and to increase Israel, but then he goes and he makes all the patriarchs barren. Like, why? Why does God do that? Does the progress have to be so slow? Does the process need to take so many generations? Yet God choose to go small, start weak, and to begin where no one ever takes notice. Why does Israel, the nation, the history, has to begin in a place of slavery and of oppression? Why is it so? Paul recounts this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. He says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Again, why is it so? I want to suggest two things for us. The first thing is that when it comes to the things of God, we really, trusting God and walking by faith is of such supreme importance. And when you look at the Torah, You've got to understand the Torah has all these different themes over it. It's got all these laws and God establishing things. But there is a thread that runs throughout the Torah, throughout the early account, and that's the thread of faith. You see, when Paul was looking at the Torah and teaching about the Torah, the one thing that Paul did in Hebrews chapter 12 as he recounts the Torah and the people that lived through the Torah is he exemplified the one quality that marked these people, and it was faith. From Abel, who by faith offered a better offering than Cain, to Noah, who by faith built an ark, preaching repentance and impending judgment literally for decades before the flood came, to the faith of Abraham when he left and he, you know, he journeyed and became a sojourner. You see, the nature of faith is this. Faith excludes sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. And there is something is when you choose to walk by faith, then you choose to let go of your ability to see. And I mean to see in the natural, right? You take a step into the dark in reliance uh, upon God's word and what he's done for you. you know, and and the, the funny thing about faith is that faith is really something undervalued in the world. If you walk by faith, the world's going to ridicule you, right? In fact, we ourselves, we don't like to walk by faith. We prefer an operating system that is not faith. I'm telling you this. When you do something, you want to calculate the risk, you want to project the results, and you want a timeline. All the things, are projects I do, I tell you, I look at these things. I look at budget, I look at timeline, I look at, uh, you know, because we are so used to not operating by faith. But faith, the problem with faith is that faith gives us no details whatsoever. All we have is a substance of God's word in which he has spoken that comes inside of us, and we know, and we know, and we know, and we know that we have heard from God. And that's all we have to go by. And yet that's the currency that propels all the patriarchs in the journey, in the Torah. And that's what everybody operated by, by faith. Amen. The temptation for us is always to go on an uh, operating system that is practical. To place faith, you know, to, to, to walk faith and to choose faith is really hard. It's torturous. And honestly, none of us really like it, right? And think about this, okay? 
Abraham has this covenant with God, many children and the land. By the time he died, he only had one son. And he had no land except for one piece of burial ground in the promised land. That's all he had. That is how faith looks like. How many of you would like faith? I promise you this is something that we would not willingly accept or we would not willingly choose. And yet it is by faith. It's the currency that God uses. You see, all of us here in Singapore, we're so well-to-do. Everything is so comfortable. I promise you most of us can be a good Christian without faith. Right? You know your salary is going to come in. You know bus 12 is going to come every day at every, every five, seven, eight-minute interval. I mean, you know that when you turn the tap on, water is going to flow. When you flip the switch, electricity is going to come. I mean, what, what is it that you are doing right now that actually requires faith? What is it? And if, if there's nothing in your Christian life right now that you are doing that actually requires faith, then what kind of a walk is that? Where is God involved in that? And I want to encourage us because God is inviting every one of us to a walk of faith. And you've got to begin to ask God and say, Lord, what is it? There's got to be something more in my life than you want to do. Now, finally, I want to talk about this thing, about why God chooses the small, the weak, and the insignificant. And it's got to do with His Word and His name. In Psalms 138 verse 2, uh, the psalmist writes this, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above your name. What does this mean? You see, the world always wants to look good, and so do we. We want to look impressive. We want to know and show people that we are right. We want to appear strong, intelligent, respectable. The bigger, the better. The higher the market cap, the more reputable. And we all like these things. And yet, God has a very different and a contrarian method from the world. God somehow delights in the humble. He looks at the poor and the broken, and he chooses those. When he looks for a man or a woman, he looks not for the perfect, but the Bible tells us he builds with burnt stones, rejected. A smoking flax he will not extinguish, a bruised reed he will not break. This is the nature of God. More than anything else, his word tells us this is what he does. Somehow God esteems his word above his name. In other words, this character is always going to stand above looking good. God has never chosen to look good in front of people. When Jesus was hanging on the cross in shame, naked, as though in defeat, he could have called for 12 legions of angels to deliver him. They would have showed up and all that glory took him down from the cross and everybody would go, wow. But he never chose that because he's placed his word above his name. And that's what it means. And that's why Christianity sometimes looks almost like we are in constant defeat. If you read the book of Acts, think about it. It's like a book of defeat, right? Yeah, here the churches are planted. Yeah, there are miracles that are done. But before, but before Paul even died, some of these churches began to turn apostate. Not one of these disciples died a normal death. They all died martyrs. And yet there is victory in those books. But the victory of God looks different. The victory of God is not about what we look in front of people. It's about carrying the character of God even to our graves. And there is something beautiful about that. Stephen standing in front of those who would condemn him, who would stone him to death. And while he's being stoned to death, his face is shining and there's joy. And he sees the Son, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father. How would you like to die like that, beholding that? But that's exactly what it is. And we got to get used to this. You got to get used to the fact that church is never going to be in the ascendancy because God's not chosen that method. The weak, the small, the insignificant. And yet we will thrive through being weak, small, and insignificant. 
through his strength, through our weakness, he's made strong. By his grace, you know, we are more than sufficient and able. Nothing can overcome the faith that is in us. That's what it is. I want to close by saying this. One of my favorite shows, of course, is Lord of the Rings. And uh, I just absolutely love J.R. Tolkien and some of the stuff he writes. And um, in The Hobbit, okay, I, I, I suggest, you know, if you've not watched this, watch The Hobbit, don't read the book. Unless you are below 12 years old, you can read The Hobbit, okay? But The Hobbit is re- really J.R. Tolkien's to write a children's book. A little bit childish, but great stuff. But the movie is fantastic. And there's one part of the movie, okay, and, you know, Gandalf takes the dwarves to reclaim their land, and along the way, he brings a little hobbit. And the hobbit is not like any of the other people. They're not tall, they're not strong, they can't ride a horse, they can't fight, they don't have magic, they don't have skill, you know, and they're fearful, they're vulnerable. And why on earth, on such a perilous journey, would they bring a hobbit along? And the El- Elven Queen asked, asked you know, um, Gandalf, he says, why this guy? Why do you bring this guy along? And Gandalf said this, he said, Saruman, the other wizard, the white wizard, believes that it is only great power that can hold evil back. But Gandalf says this, but that is not what I found. I found it is in the small everyday deeds of ordinary folks that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. You see, J.R. Tolkien was a devout Christian who really wanted to tell stories to show the world who God is. And that's why his stories always, the, the, winning, the winning factor is always some guy who's small, insignificant, powerless. And God uses these people. You know, and that's the hobbits, right? I mean, they're short, hairy feet. They don't even wear shoes. Right? And, and, you know, when, they get, when people get stabbed, they're always the first one to get stabbed, right? Of course, you know. <laughs> On our staff, we've got a couple of hobbits, you know, really just kidding let's all stand to our feet shall we but I want to tell you this the hobbits on our staff are some of the most capable people okay (laughs) we can look impressive in the world and amount to nothing but if you want to look impressive in the kingdom of God I'm telling you this it's not going to look so good in the eyes of the world that's how God has chosen things to be amen and I want to ask us as we look at this, if we would make a few adjustments mentally this weekend. Number one, I, I so ask you, my brothers and my sisters, that when we walk out of this place, open our eyes. There are millions who do not know Jesus, whom God has such a love and a heart, whom God knows them by name. He knows the pain they're going through and is looking for someone will be the extension of his hands and feet to them. And we got to start noticing people. We got to start knowing that God has put great value in the people around us. And I want to ask us to just to tweak the way we think. And I want us also to think about our own individual capacity. We got to stop undermining ourselves. I cannot, I can't, who am I? God has placed such potential in every one of us. And not only that, all of us have received his spirit and His empowerment for us to do great things. We just need to come to know the Lord. Amen. We just need to get close to God. And finally, of course, you know, to choose what is small, what is humble. Don't despise those things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come to You. We thank You, Lord, that Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are far higher, Lord. Father, we need to go through a re-education, Lord. The systems of this world has taught us a way that is not Your ways, Lord. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, today, you would remove and wash away those ways that are not of you. 
those thinking, those mindset that does not come from you and help us realign the way we think, the way we see, that when we walk out of this place, we'll see with such love, we'll see with such perspective, we will see situations differently, we will not seek for some great victory in the eyes of the world, but we'll see, seek for great accomplishments in your eyes, oh God. Father, we ask you to change the way we see, oh Lord. Align it to us because in that alignment is the potential for us to change the world. We love you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory. And now I just speak your blessings over your congregation, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap off, shall we? listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.